Now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Cood Street Motel 6, it's Gary Wolf and Jonathan Strahan with very special guest Eileen Gunn on the Cood Street Podcast! And Eileen is back for the first time in, in quite a while, but l l l let, me, let me ask you something, Eileen. I, I went back and looked up actually my reviews of your collections of stories, and I realized that Stable Strategies came out in 2004, yes. and um, uh, question, no, Questionable Practices came out in 2014, exactly 10 years later. And now here is Night Shift, and it's only eight years later. Are you getting ahead of yourself here? I'm speeding up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you're oh. slower and slower as they get older, but maybe it's thanks to the pandemic, but I'm speeding up. Well, Are actually, you... I mean, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, you finish. No, so, uh... I was just going to say, it's, it's actually quite, I mean, we're rushing into it. Maybe we should stop and take a moment to say that it is great to have you back on the podcast because it has been a while. Um, how how was getting through the the whole pandemic for you? Have you ended up being more productive, less productive, or is it just the house is tidier? Much more productive. Much more. Because, because the I mean, the pandemic made me stay home, for one thing. And then Kat Rambo started uh, Zoom writing sessions you know two hours at a at a, a pop every day and she was relentless she was every day and that was whoa it, just a month or so after everything shut down uh, in 2020 and I so I she invited me to come and I started going to that and it was miraculous sitting down every day for two hours and writing you know, it turns out you can actually get things done. <laughs> you mean the old axiom about applying your you know, your backside to the chair is actually an, a reasonably accurate one. Who knew? Who knew it would work? <laughs> but also because I was home all the time. Uh, I, Leslie, what, and I, I've been, she went, and I went to Clarion together. And I, and Leslie couldn't make cats. Um, session. So I started another session, another two-hour session at a time that Leslie could show up. And then Nisi Shaw started one. So pretty soon I was working six hours a day. <laughs> and it was special. It was my only contact with other human beings other than my partner, who is, is a genuine human being, admittedly. But, you know, <laughs> you still you need to get out sometimes. <laughs> I mean, has, has that been mostly working on short work or on, on other things? Both. I've been working on on short stories. I've got a story in the what the September October Asimovs that I I mean all my stories are ones I've worked on forever usually, and that's a story I've been working on since 2012 or something. But it's done and it's in Asimovs. It I finished it and immediately sent sold it to Asimovs. Um, but the I am working on my novel now. Now that I've finished the, the story in, that's in Asimov's, which is really it's an important story for me. I spent a lot of time spent a lot of time thinking about it and what would go into it. And mm -hmm. a lot this is of, one night stand. Pardon? One this night is one stand. night stand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, one night stand. Yeah, one night stand. I never remember the titles of my own stories, but yeah, this is one night stand. And so once that was done, I've mm -hmm. I've been focusing entirely on the novel that I'm working on. And you've been working Excellent. on that for quite a while also. Since 2008. That's, you know, I'm, I'm impressed that you keep track of it. Um, but it's... Now, that one is actually time-stamped because Michael Swanwick gave me the idea and he sent it to me three months before ReaderCon in 2008 in April and said that this was a short story idea and I should write it. He didn't want to write it. And it would be perfect for ReaderCon in 2008 when Mark Twain was the guest of honor. The, the dead. And it turned out to be a, an idea that I thought wasn't, wouldn't make a great short story. It was, too, it was too big an idea for a short story. And, but I thought it would make a great novel. And then I could just see it unrolling as a novel, as what would happen. And I've been sticking to it. No, I mean, I told Michael it wouldn't be a short story. I almost told him to take it back, but you know, <laughs> an idea back. You, you and Michael have a kind of history of daring each other to write stories, don't you? Well, Michael browbeats me is what happens. <laughs> okay. I mean, nobody needs to dare him to write a story. He will, he will do anything. That's true. He will do it fast, and it will be fantastic. And 
I, I, I'll only do stories that I can understand why I'm doing them. I can only do stories that I can start myself. I like my own words. Well, I with Michael's stories, Michael usually started the story. I think he always, he always started the story. I think mm. that's these like leftover beginnings or something, and he fed them to me one by one. But well, they were all given, given that by Howard Waldrop standards, just you, you've just barely started this novel. Um, <laughs> how far how far along do you feel you are? Has it are you getting towards sort of some kind of completion, or is it still sort of something you're wrestling with? Well, I'm writing it all. I'm writing all the parts at once, which is probably not the way real people do it, but it's the way I do, it. and it. It's because it's a historical novel and because it's it's based on historical characters. I have a pacing. I know what their lives were like and I know where they were when, or at least one of them. And I want I need to that's my guide. That's sort of the rack on which I'm writing the novel. And I can write it I can write any scenes at different parts of this particular character's life. And and I, I'm comfortable with that. So so it's kind of, I've got about maybe 40,000 words at this point, and I'm putting them in order. I'm going to be workshopping. I've read the beginning of it twice in the last three months, and each time um, it, it has not gone through the process. I kind of wonder, the first time my I was reading it on Zoom, and my microphone garbled the whole thing. Oh, and no. nobody and to me, nobody said, Eileen, we can't hear you. So I read for like 40 minutes. Oh, no. Everybody was like right. pretending they were oh, going along. Gagun has started on her Finnegan's Wake. We'll just sit it out. <laughs> and, and then for the Worldcon, I, I wanted to do a reading there, and I couldn't find the reading room. I looked, I looked for an hour and a quarter. I, I got the convention to help me and we all looked for an hour and a quarter and eventually we found the reading room but by then I was 10 minutes late so I only got to read for like 10 minutes and you you know it wasn't enough to even get started so so I feel like it's kind of doomed to try to re read it over a machine maybe I will workshop it and see if it works that way but I've got I'm, it's actually fun it's it's a good exercise to make it make the beginning because I've been writing bits and bits and bits and bits and now I have to say something coherent for, you know, 5,000 words or so. Yeah, well, I mean, Gary was saying this is Night Shift Plus, which is what all of the PM press collections are, you sort of have as their little appended thing there, plus dot, 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 um, is your fourth collection. In some ways, I don't think it's much like any of your others. Can I ask you, when and where did putting this together start for you? Well, it started when Terry Carr asked, I mean, Terry Bisson asked me to, to do it. Um, and I I love the PM Press series. It's a wonderful series. And I had been highly envious. I'd been jealous as the books came out. But each yeah. one of the books, I would have to say, that person is more outspoken than I am. That person <laughs> deserves to be there before me. And and it, I, I couldn't I couldn't fault him on any of his decisions. And mm -hmm. the next in the series is Jonathan Liam, who probably deserved yep. to be uh, uh, Liam, who probably deserved to be before me too. Yeah. So uh, I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, yeah, I couldn't even go and say, Terry, when is it my turn? My sense is that he was never doing it in any particular order. I mean, I remember talking to him about it and mentioning a couple of names and, and his response was, oh yeah, good idea. So it's, it's whatever pops into his mind, I think. I mean, obviously some of the earlier volumes, I mean, getting Le Guin, for example, and getting Chip Delaney and that sort of thing, those, the obviously outstanding legends of the field for decades, um, he wanted to get in, but it's, he's also shown an interest, not just in old, old timers yeah. like himself, but in younger writers. And I think the if I'm not mistaken, the last one before yours was Meg Ellison. Um, that was two two before me. Um, um, Nick Mamatis. Um, Nick Mamatis was one before you, yours. I okay. Think. And and let's see, James Patrick Kelly, and and um, Vandana oh, Singh. I have name aphasia, so I'm blanking out on the yeah. person who's immediately before me. Uh, immediately before you was Utopias of the Third Kind by Vandana Singh. That's right. Right. Okay. 
Right. Now, but I mean, what, what's interesting to me with, with this book is that unlike your other collections, it's a mix of fiction and nonfiction. It's I think something like four short stories and seven or eight essays. So how did you come up with what it was going to, going to contain? Was that Terry pushing that or was that you trying to put together a collection of things that were maybe newish, but also represented who you were and what you were doing? Well, that's really Terry. I mean, it does. He wanted recent work that had not for the uh, the stories. He wanted recent work that had not been collected, and that that's everything. There's four stories in there, and that's everything aside from the one that's in Asimov's, which it was too soon and we hadn't been published yet. Um, and the essays are he wanted essays about people in science fiction. He wanted to expand because the readership is not just science fiction readership. It's broader readership. He wanted to expand people's ideas of what they could read in terms of science fiction writers who would be, who would fit into the PM Press audience, you know, um, outspoken. Yeah. um, Most of it, I I, I get the uh, email, promotional emails from PM Press. And outside of this series, they're mostly known as being a, a leftist, highly political kind of protest, almost what we would have called an underground press back in the 60s. Except they're huge. They're, Except they're, they're bigger an, than that, yeah. Frankly, an anarchist press. They're not ashamed of that. And I, I first encountered them at an anarchist fair in Seattle about oh, really? 10 or 12 years ago, at least 12 years ago. And I was so taken with their books. They had a huge table. They may have sponsored the fair. And they had this gigantic table with, with tons of books on it, all of mm-hmm. them published by this one company company and they were all fantastic books i wanted all of them and i knew they never i mean a lot of them were big thick books um about the history of anarchism and, and all compelling titles and compelling books i knew i would never read all of them but i wanted all of them i wanted to have them on my walls to remind me of of every everybody who had had fought on my side in the great the great war you know um, and I was just very taken with them, and was and so I'm sort of doubly pleased to be published by them because I was so impressed with their just the quality of their books and the number of their books. Yeah, I think it's um, a, go ahead. It sounds like putting the, the the fiction component together of this was fairly straightforward. It was what you had available. When it came to the short, the uh, nonfiction though, you know, were did it surprise you looking at? what was available and what you've been writing about, how much it was about um, the careers of other science fiction writers about that kind of thing? Or was it a fairly straightforward process to come up with these particular pieces? Well, these are, it it, it wasn't a straightforward process. I had a lot of other pieces that I considered or ran by Terry. Terry's a very active editor with it. And, and he, he read everything and, you know, his, his uh, interview with me there meant he was paying attention to everything. It was just a really great interview. And yeah, he, he asked all the these wonderful questions that I could unfold things on that were relevant to the stories. But he paid attention to everything. And he paid attention to every email I sent him in constructing these questions. And so I, I had a lot of pieces. Um, I mean, I've I written a lot of introductions for people in Mm-hmm. program books and things like that. I've written a lot, unfortunate number of obituaries. And I've written, uh, you know, other, I've given talks. And I used bits and pieces of all that to construct these these essays. The only one that was printed pretty much as I'd originally written it is the, the essay about Ursula Le Guin's author of the Acacia Seeds. I was going to ask you about that because um, the Le Guin essay is she's she's the most widely known writer of the ones you discuss of the handful you talk about. Although even then, when people talk about Le Guin's influence on them or how reading Le Guin changed the way they could view science fiction, they're not talking about the author of the Acacia Seeds. That's an unusual choice. Which brings me to my other point: you've been throughout your career a kind of champion of a tradition of science fiction and fantasy writing that I don't think has a name. I know you've spent a lot of time working on a biography of Avram Davidson. One of the essays um, in, in, in the volume deals with Carol Imschwiller, who the image that's, I, I wanted to ask you about this separately, but she actually walked up to her 12th floor apartment in her 80s? Oh yeah, 
That makes yeah, me. That walked, makes, I find that encouraging. I don't know why. <laughs> she, walked, she walked up into the mountains with Pat Murphy and me, and she she was keeping up with us the whole way. And keeping up is not she. She wasn't leading us at that point. She was probably eighty-seven. Wow. She was not trailing behind us by any means, and we walked. The total hike was probably six miles, maybe seven miles, and we walked up to a wildflower meadow, and it. I, I recounted some of that in the in the essay on in Carol. The essay. But the, but but there's also you you mention her fiction, and there are other writers who you don't specifically talk about, but mention like Howard Waldorf, for example. When I said a tradition of science fiction that doesn't have a name, and I think of people like Davidson and Waldrop and Carol M. Schwaller, some of Joanna Ross, maybe not the most best known. Mm-hmm. It's it's not dystopian science fiction. It's not hard science fiction. It's not satire. It's and there's a fable-like aspect to all these writers. And one of the things that has fascinated me when I've been talking to you is how you pointed out writers who are not widely read today, like Abraham Davidson, are still broadly influential because the people who are influencing writers were themselves influenced by writers like Does that make sense? Right. And I, I had thought about including the essay I wrote on Avram, uh, but it, it was, I felt that he, the essay was intended for a purpose other than being in that collection. It was, it was, about 10,000 words, and it was a, a biographical essay on him rather than a highlights kind of thing. Whereas these essays, um, the, the essay on, on the author of the Acacia Seeds was written as a, certainly as a present for Ursula yeah. um, for a festschrift that was done for her 80th birthday. And so I wrote that with, with Ursula in mind uh, as reading it. And I wrote it to to tell Ursula just how much she meant to me and my my decision to continue writing science fiction when I I decided to be a full time writer. And so that that was I, it was not written with any other author in mind audience in mind really. The other essays were written either for introductions to people's books or. For, for obituaries or as talks or whatever. But they're also all pretty consistently, I think, based around your relationship in some sense with those writers. They're not, I mean, you're saying the piece about Avram was a, 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 an autobi- a, a biographical piece. You know, that strikes me as more of a, if you like, a particular kind of impersonal nonfiction. The uh, piece about Gardner very much, the piece about uh, Carol M. Schwiller, uh, the piece about uh, Ursula, they're all about, you and them in a way, aren't they? Yes. And so they yeah, didn't say, go ahead, I'm sorry. I mean, most, most of my essays are about that. The The essay on Avram was, uh, was an exception. Most of my writing, I don't know, I had a long list of essays. I was surprised to see how many essays I have when uh, I put together the, the bibliography. Um, but I think many of them were written uh, on request and they were written for a specific purpose. And there is, I don't, I don't, I'm very uncomfortable writing in a, uh, an essay where I'm standing above who I'm writing about. That's one, one of the problems I had writing a biography of Avram was that I couldn't, I, I, I was very uncomfortable in that point of view so that I am much more likely to write about another writer in terms of my relationship with them than in terms of an abstract uh, analysis of their work mm-hmm. or their life. Well, I, I'm, yeah. I'm sure that I, I've read things, and I know uh, a year a year or two ago you were working on a, a long essay about <laughs> fantasy. It was kind of a scholarly distance thing that wouldn't be the sort of thing that would go in a book like. Uh, but I'm sure it was fascinating, even though I didn't see it. For I haven't finished it. <laughs> okay, well that's why I haven't seen it probably. But nevertheless, yeah. Uh, yeah, that kind of thing, which is a daunting kind of challenge to get when somebody asks you to do that, isn't the sort of thing you'd put in a book of personal essays mo- largely about your friends and, and together with your fiction. So I, are there things you really regret having to leave out of this book? I, I think I, I regretted not being able to put the introduction I wrote to Neuromancer in it because it hasn't come out yet. The book hasn't come out yet. And I can't... Uh, the the essay was actually published online and on tor.com but the the publisher said it was all right to put it in an electronic service but not 
in print. So we're still waiting for that to come out because I felt that was a it was a good updating. I mean, I'm writing for writers now. I'm not uh, for readers now. I'm not writing for readers who read Neuromancer in 1984. Uh, and and that essay was directed at readers now. Why would you read Neuromancer now? Is there any real reason to read Neuromancer now? Hasn't it all happened? And 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 I, I was that's what I was addressing. That's the problem when I was asked to do the introduction. You know, is well, why would people read it? Who am I talking to? And if you're talking to people, whether they've read the book or not, it's a different book now than it was yeah. 40 years ago. And so, I mean, what, was your, what, was, what was your answer? Do you think it's still a book to read? Oh, yeah. I think it's just a different book. It, the, the, the feeling of being somewhere completely new and different, someplace very strange, and with, with the political links to 1984, but in the future, and you, a lot of that has come to pass. And that, that experience is not there for the new reader. And it's not really there for the old reader. You know, we had that experience in 84. We read it for the first time. But now it's a book about, about what it means to be human, what it means to be not human. Is there a, a crossover? There's a, there's a in, in my essay, I talk about all the various characters who are kind of human and kind of not human, including Molly and Grace. They are, they are both of them act like they're, they, they're, they're, you thought they were human when you first read the book, you know? But when you look at them now, they are actually constructs. They are partly human and partly, I mean, Molly's, Molly talks a lot about how it's just her nature to be violent, but she actually takes drugs that make her violent. Yeah. She, and, and as you're reading the book, you realize that. So the emphasis now, because Ollie, the peripheral uh, setting, is now familiar. Instead of being strange and new and science fictional, the focus is on the characters. And it I, I think it's just as good a book as it was. It's just a different book. Yeah. I mean, certainly, I mean, there is that thing with that particular book, and not to get too sidelined into it, because it's not really the main topic of what we're here to talk about, but is that we also live in a world that it, to some extent, brought about. A lot of the people who read that book wanted to be able to live in that space and work to try to make it come true. And to some extent, it has as a result of that which is a very odd position for any work of art to be in, really, I would think. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, also, I mean, there's the, the, the light kind of thing that the opening line no longer means what it once meant. Well, that's true. I, I've often wondered about that. How do you explain that to somebody who's never seen a cathode ray TV, show, TV set? Well, a dead channel is bright blue, so the sky is a well, different color. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Okay. And if the sky is blue, it's not a bad day. But anyway, <laughs> um, did she, did looking back at you know your own at, at your work in this way make you look at your own work in a different way at all? Because I mean, I find, I find quite often when, particularly with short story collections, because short stories are written over generally such a period of time. I don't realize these four are a particular tight period of time comparatively, but still, it, it gives you a, a retrospective feel for what you're doing. And at least in the essays, which do sprawl over more time, you know, is, is there an element of like you got perspective you didn't have before? No, I I do reread my earlier work just to reassure myself that it exists. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't I, I I'm a much better writer I think now than I am when I started. But after a certain point, uh, basically when I once I, I kind of got my balance as a writer and focused on what I was doing, my work hasn't changed that much. And I have a I have a style of my own that I totally recognize. I can tell when I read a sentence if somebody's changed it. I you know I can tell if, if if there's been editorial meddling. And but usually since I work with top editors, they don't meddle with my work. Um, but but it certainly has happened in the past um, that I'd look at something and say that's not quite what I wrote, and look up what I wrote, and it's a little bit different because somebody got a somebody was perplexed by it and corrected. I'm guessing you do a lot of whittling and carving on your own work before it ever gets to an editor. Oh, far too much. <laughs> well, here's here's the thing about because I was looking at the reviews of the earlier ones, and I think I think maybe probably in the stable strategy, there's a story which is you you reminded me of this when you were talking about Neuromancer, in one sense, completely dated alternate kind of history. I don't remember the title, but it involves Richard Nixon as a kind of TV game show host 
whose <laughs> shtick is the audience has to guess when he's lying. And I think Goldwater is in it and Kennedy, all these now dead politicians. But what struck me about it was that your version of Nixon, what, 20 some years ago, looks a lot like Trump today. He's, he's nicer than Trump. Okay. You know, he's, I mean, this is the awful thing. I haven't reread that story in a while, but uh, but it I'm very disappointed that it has come about. Oh, this I... is the, the least likely of all my stories to have ever like matured into a reality, and I'm not <laughs> happy about it. Um, it was supposed to be a funny idea. It's no longer a funny idea. It supposed, it's yeah, it, 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 it's it's what happens when absurd theater stops being absurd. Yeah. But that's that's another argument for uh, uh, for people. I, I will recommend people go back and look at your earlier collection. Probably your most famous story, or I'm guessing your most anthology, most anthologized story would be Stable Strategies for Middle yeah. Management, which I think of as your Microsoft story. Am I off base on that? <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's completely my Microsoft story. <laughs> I mean, it, I'm not, at first I was kind of downplaying that, but. Nobody at Microsoft cares. You know? <laughs> <laughs> personal corporate world where people literally bite each other's heads off. <laughs> and the, yeah, uh, yeah, pretty much everybody could relate to that. All around the world, people could relate to that. Exactly. And it hasn't dated. Uh, I mean, it may have been Microsoft for you, but people working for Amazon probably recognized that story as well as your colleagues did all those decades ago. Yeah, because there's no real science in it except about insects. So that's the only, if it's science fiction aspect. Reading the essays in the book, I've got to ask you, how important has fandom been to your writing? By which I mean, you know, there's a community around science fiction, science fiction writers, and science fiction fandom, science fiction invention. And you're, when you look at the essays that you're, particularly say the essay about Gardner, you're, in, you're meeting Gardner at conventions. You're talking about writing at conventions. You're meeting editors at conventions, this sort of. So uh, ha, has fandom impacted and changed or interacting at conventions uh, changed or impacted your writing and your career? Well, it's a complicated thing because fandom is not what I do at conventions for the most part. At conventions, I'm a professional writer. And because I'm married to someone who is a very unapologetic fan, yeah. um, a well-known fan and has been in science fiction fandom since he was 16, um, I'm not, or maybe 12, I'm not sure. Um, he's been editing science fiction magazines since he was 12. Uh, but I think he went to his first convention at 16. Um, because of that, it's hard to dissect my relationship to fandom. Certainly, you know, William Gibson was a fan as as a yeah. younger man before before he became a writer. Well, uh, there was a transitional period there. Some of his early work was published in fan scenes, including one that my partner edited, my husband. Um, so, and but I met I met Bill at Kate and Damon's workshop. So that that counts as a professional friend, I think. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, and, but, but a fuzzy sort of set, you know. Yeah. It, it, um, it is a real fuzzy sort of thing, isn't it? Well, I got to know him basically because my husband knew him yeah. previously, you know. Yeah. So, so that kind of sealed the deal in terms of friendship. Was you were so, kind of both early, both young professionals when you met each other. Neither one yeah. of you, yeah. Because yeah. that, that was kind of what I was thinking when I was uh, before you and I met Eileen. When I was told I should meet Eileen Gunn. It was always in a professional context. It wasn't like you need to meet this fan. It wasn't like you need to meet Earl Korshak. It you need to. That's that's fandom. That's what. And when somebody like actually Charlie Brown, of course, said you need to talk to Eileen, it was because you knew stuff. Because you knew stuff professionally. You knew. Well, this is probably his paranoia. You knew whose skeletons were in whose closets and all sorts of stuff. And, and, and you were kind of the head of hopper of the field. <laughs> well, that's funny. I didn't, I didn't think about that of being somebody uh, that I should know because I knew all the skeletons. But, but that does sound like something that Charles would think about. Well, it's something that Charles was probably a little paranoid about. Um, like, don't get on Eileen's bad side. I don't know what he meant by that. <laughs> I, he, he never explained it. I never asked, and I've never seen your bad side. So, <laughs> I, I don't. Nobody wants to be on my bad side. <laughs> I mean, I come on. I was a senior manager at Microsoft. I do have. <laughs> well, you have that. 
but the, you do have a a, a a web. You have a web of connections, which a lot of people envy. A lot of people who have published many more stories than you do. And, and some of this goes back, uh, I'm sure, to the Infinite Matrix, which was kind of a pioneering uh, web presence for science fiction bef- long before there was a Tor.com, uh, before the, all the fanzine, fanzines had migrated online. Right at the time, right at the time Ellen was was um, getting, she, she had just been hired to to do the the website the, for, um, oh, what was the magazine that Omni? she had worked Omni. When Omni was doing its first webzine, Ellen was hired to do that. And when the people who founded the Infinite Matrix, the people that hired me, uh-huh. Uh, they wanted to hire Ellen, and Ellen was no. I've got a job. I'm working for Omni. You know, get <laughs> off because she was the biggest name in the in the field for short fiction, yeah. as she still is, and justifiably. I mean, she works very hard at it, and she's very well and has superb taste. I mean, what's not to like about Ellen Datlow? So she, they they wanted to ask her, and she wouldn't do it, and. There's there's several different versions of the story of how they came to ask me, but they did ask me, and I realized when they asked me, even though I didn't feel I was uh, anyone capable of of uh, uh, of running a science fiction magazine, I knew that I'd already been managing editor for a website for a yeah. big 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 website, you know, a man website, and and I had run that very successfully. I I knew how to do it. I knew where where the pitfalls lay. I knew how to do it. Um, it, I, this was outside the science fiction field, but I had, boy, it had been a, a big, big job. And I knew how to build a website and I knew HTML. I knew all of the, I knew that you couldn't build your own website anymore. Yeah. You know, I built my first website in 96 and by 2002, boy, somebody else had better build that website. There were too many things that could go wrong. And, and I had been a project project manager and, and a manager, senior manager at Microsoft. So I knew how to get things done. And I knew that had things that had to get done, had to get done on time, and mm-hmm. I could put it through. And I also had a marketing background, so I could write the, um, the, the marketing plan, so to speak, for the project, which they hadn't even considered having. And I thought, no, 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 you don't know whether your marketing has succeeded if you don't have a plan. So yeah, I'm yeah, going yeah. plan. Right. So I knew that that I could do the job better than anybody else they could ask. So I wasn't shy about accepting it, and it was it was great fun. I don't think it was as influential as I you know I I really don't know why I know so many people except I, you know because I always thought of myself as a fairly shy person, but um, but maybe that's just like I'm, I'm more timid than shy. I don't know, but if people talk to me, I like to talk back. Well, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't just your expertise in in building and marketing a website, though. You had to know your way around science fiction. You had to have your connection. You had That's to know how to get contributors, and that goes back to the question, to the issue that you're raising right there. You have a, a, a kind of astonishing network of people who have enormous respect for Eileen Gunn, uh, as do I. And if you'd tell me, if you'd told me years ago how to do that, I would have done it myself. But no, it's too late now. Well, I, I, I think I had that before I started the Infinite Matrix. Okay, that's, that's um, kind of you, you that, was, that was the reason I was attractive to the to the guys at Matrix was that I I I certifiably could call on major writers in the field and expect them to answer my mail. Right. It didn't mean they were willing to sell me a story. It didn't mean they had time to sell a little startup website a story. It was very clear that it was the web. The web was not the main thing then, and people were afraid to be on it. So, because somebody could steal your story, quote unquote. Are you ever tempted to go back to something like that? I mean, it's been what about <laughs> fifteen years or so since Infinite Matrix uh, went off the air, as it were. Does that that kind of work ever appeal to you? Do you ever think about doing it again? I did it because they were paying me. No, I separate. I I write fiction. Nobody pays me to write fiction. I make hardly any money from writing fiction or nonfiction. If I finish that essay on the history of fantasy, um, nobody will pay me for it. I will get I will get basically airport fare, you know, cab yeah, fare yeah. Um, for for selling it. 
Um, so that's what, obviously, that's what I want to do. I, if I were being paid money to, to do something, that would be a fun thing to be paid money to do. But none of that would I go and do um, for nothing. So is that the answer? It was fun to that do it. Is. I, mean, I, mean, I was also going to ask, I mean, because when I looked down at you know, who you published back at, back in, in the day, a decade and a half ago, those who are still around at all are still quite, quite high profile, productive writing. Uh, in fact, I know that you published Christopher Rowe back in Infinite Matrix. Yeah. And he's, I think, the next book in the, uh, well, the book after uh, the Jonathan Lethem book at PM Press will be a Christopher Rowe book. So it all kind of ties up in this sort of interesting way. And I know you published, you know, Charlie Strauss and Corey Doctorow and these kind of things. So there's got to be a kind of a feeling of satisfaction with that, 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 that this work has, has echoed on forward. And I, I could see that as being something that would be attractive to be involved in again, even if the landscape has changed as much as it. You know, I've, I've, I enjoyed doing that. And I enjoyed, I enjoyed asking people when they said yes, yeah. you know, and eventually people did say yes. People who, who initially would say, no, I can't do that. No, my publisher won't allow me to do that. All of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, by the time I finished doing it, they'd come around. And it was really fun to give Corey a, a, a place in the in the magazine because it, he, he had just finished his first novel and I'd read bits of it. Uh, and it, And I said, you know, can I can I include bits in the in the Infinite Matrix? And he said yes. It it was great. It was we were both really happy with that. It it was fun working with everybody I worked with, but it was fun being in advertising too, at least in retrospect. And and Microsoft was always stimulating and interesting to be at, even when um, it was kind of a cage. So a fighting cage, one of those ones where yeah. they put some crickets in a cage. Um. It, I, I write because I, it's what I like to do. And it's just, it's, it's more daunting, it's scarier than managing a bunch of stuff. I mean, it, it, may seem, it may seem like having done the Infinite Matrix was fun, but it was actually a lot of project management involved with that. It was a management job as well as an editorial work as management. It was getting, getting the stories read and I, until Nisi Shaw joined me as a, I say Nisi did some second reading, but she joined me as a publicist, yeah. and she, and I'm sure she she read some manuscripts, but she doesn't remember that. Um, but until Nisi joined me, I was doing it all by myself, um, and and it was um it 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 made it hard for me to write. Sure, of course. All these other things interfere with my ability to write fiction, and so this. I mean, working at Microsoft was useful because it made it possible for me to write fiction. When I left Microsoft, I had five years worth of money that I could just write. Mm-hmm. And I had to learn what I was doing. I had to rethink what I was doing again to get back into that space. And I, don't, I wouldn't want to lose that. Right now, you know, I, I need to finish this novel. I don't need to think about what... Somebody else wants sure. me to do. Well, I, and, I, I, I was going to ask you: Is the focus then getting the novel done, or are you also writing stories at the same time? Or well, sort of- <laughs> I've been writing the novel since two thousand and eight, and I've finished um, five, six stories since that time. I think um, so. Yeah, I'm writing stories at the same time. Um, but the novel, I think, the novel is critically important. I think it's a really a wonderful topic that Michael handed me. And I think my exploration of it is it's taking a long time because it's it's a serious topic. It's a bunch of serious topics all jumbled together. And it's a historical novel about 19th century America. And you've been doing traveling around the United States, doing research on it, right, for a yes. couple of years now. It, it, sounds like, it sounds like a horrible cliche to say this, but it sounds like a version of the great American novel. It sounds like you're just going down the heart of the United States, looking at the Mississippi River, looking at Mark Twain's America and reinventing it in what we all assume will be some kind of science fictional or fantastical way. It's definitely an alternate, an alternate history, I think. Okay. Rather than a, a fin, I'm, I'm very away from fantastical things because I'm taking my characters very seriously. 
um, and the characters are white characters and black characters, mm-hmm. and it's as much about slavery and women, women's position in the world, and how how that affects what they can do. It's it's a it's a serious a bunch of serious subject matters. It sounds great. I mean, it it, it, it sounded. I, all I can say is keep at it and don't let anybody rush you. Yeah, yeah, it was no, but I. What's rushing me is the the fact that, like, what I'm 77. I probably only have 20 years left to finish it. You'll I can say that's optimistic, optimistic, and I can say that's pessimistic, and either one would be true. <laughs> um, well, you, since your version of alternate history isn't like anybody else. Uh, to get back to the anthology, tell everybody who Terrible Trudy was. Terrible Trudy was an actual. Entity. She was called Terrible Trudy. She was a, a taper, a Malaysian taper, at the San Diego Zoo in the, ni- the late 30s and the early 1940s. Well, all through the 40s, I think. When did she die? I think. I think she died in in the early fifth 1950s. Are they late 1950s? I think it was, you you said 1950s. so at the end of the story. I could probably look it, it up right now. It's at the end of the story, but I've forgotten. But she lived her, She was a resident taper at the San Diego Zoo when she wasn't escaping. And I I was told this story. Uh, There's a, a page on the San Diego Zoo's site that, that gave the details of Terrible Trudy's biography. And I just really thought that she would make a great um, story by... By Kelly mm-hmm. Link. She 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 died in nineteen fifty nine. Okay, and that's what what's interesting is that that's a true story. And for those, uh, this is a I guess this is a spoiler alert for people who have not read uh, the story of Terrible Trudy or Terrible Trudy on the Lamb. Your version of Terrible Trudy escapes and undertakes a nightclub career and becomes an assistant <laughs> to a private eye and hard boiled. Uh, San Francisco or something, uh, and, and and does imitations of Jimmy Durante on stage. So you've got this whole kind of thing going on, and it's a hoot. It's a hoot. It's a lot of fun. And then at the very end of all this complete fantasia, and I use that term deliberately because it feels like a Disney cartoon at times, demented Disney cartoon. At the end of this, we found out, no, terrible Trudy was real. She just didn't do the Jimmy Durante impressions and work for the private eye. She never had roller skates. But she never had roller skates. <laughs> she would have enjoyed them so much. I know. I feel bad for her. Well, maybe less so for a taper than for a real person, but writing about real people, how, I mean, it's a topic that's in the news today. How responsible do you feel about writing about those people to be correct, to, be, to, to represent them fairly when you, when you write about them? Well, I'm certainly trying to represent Mark Twain fairly. Hmm. Um, and and to not use Mark Twain's own words, so if in dialogue, um, so there is a difference between my Mark Twain and actual Mark Twain uh-huh. because I'm trying to have my Mark Twain talk like Mark Twain without without that, actually being Mark Twain without without plagiarizing him, not sounding like Hal Holbrook. I, I don't remember what Hal Holbrook sounds <laughs> like, but he was. If he was sounding like Mark Twain, then I want to sound like Hal Holbrook because I want it to sound like Mark Twain. I just don't want to swipe Mark Twain's lines. Right. There was a... he's another writer. Why would I steal another writer's work? So I'm treating Mark Twain as a, a person, but a different yeah. person. And, and because it's, a, it's obviously not Mark, a life of Mark Twain, you can tell uh, pretty much from the beginning that this is not actually Samuel Clemens telling the story um so i because of that i think nobody's going to think that this is mark twain or that this is a historical novel about mark twain sure it's what, a historical what, novel of a of a flavor but well, it, it, it sounds to me like i don't know if you've uh, read george saunders lincoln in the bardo but that clearly is not meant to be our historical lincoln it's his yeah. invented version of lincoln uh who sounds credible and works uh very powerfully within the context of that novel. But you can't take George Saunders' Lincoln out of that novel and do anything else with him because he only functions in that narrative. And it sounds like what your Mark Twain is doing is occupying the space of your novel, but that's it. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, I, I tried to read Lincoln and Bardo and then I thought maybe I should not read this. There's books that I do feel that maybe I should not read this as an important uh-huh listen to did you did you avoid karen joy fowler's booth for the same reason no i loved that 
But oh, the, I loved it so much. But again, I, it's it's clearly not a historical. They are historical booths, but they're not. And, and what I loved was the end at the end after the novel, where she she answered all the questions that you had as you exactly. reading it. Yeah. How does she know this? Is this true? <laughs> I loved that so much. I have to tell Karen, but I I I started. I I downloaded it. I I paid for it in advance, and they you know on the on the publisher's uh-huh. site, and they, it was the book had not been released yet, and it's like a little. Thank you. They sent people who paid who, who bought the book on their site um, a, a, the first chapter. Oh, cool! And, to download, and I downloaded it, and then I immediately forgot it was there, and it's just sitting on my computer behind a whole bunch of other stuff on the browser, you know. And I, after a, a couple weeks, I'm like looking at this text, and it didn't say what it was um, because it was the first, just the first page. Uh-huh. Of, of that chapter and the first page there's no lines up above telling you who the author is or what the title of the book is or anything so I looked at it and I started I thought what the hell is this and I started reading it and halfway down I mean I only got like a paragraph a half and a half in and I thought who is this person oh my god I must read more of their work this is just fantastic how could I never have known this person and I turned the page and it it said um, um, booth at the top. And I thought, oh. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, my God, I got to read Karen Joy Fowler for the first time twice. <laughs> right. That's a great story. And, you know, she wrote, she'd written a story maybe 10 years ago. It was in her, coll- her last collection about Booth. And it was, I think, as I recall, about time travelers coming back uh, and staying in a rooming house uh during the time of the assassination, I may be getting that wrong, but yeah, I, 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 I know she'd been working with, uh, with Booth, but what, what pleased me about what we, we shouldn't be spending the whole time talking about her novel, though it's terrific, is it's not all about John Wilkes Booth. It's not really even mainly about him. Uh, right. it's, a, it's a family saga, which is way more interesting than it has any right to be. And for those well, of us who are not, who are not interested in historical fiction. I don't think there's anything in Booth that qualifies it as fantastic, but it no. feels, feels otherworldly in a way. And it's, it's, it's one of the things that I think has to do with technique. And technique is something else that, that I know you pay a lot of attention, that when you get writers like, I don't know, uh, Nicola Griffith's historical fiction feel like a fantasy, even though they're not. Um, mm-hmm. And th- th- there's... Yeah. there's I've always thought there is a fantastic tone or there is an otherworldly tone that works perfectly well if nothing materially fantastic happens in the story. That's fantastic. I had never thought about that. But, yeah, I mean, Karen does it. Well, Karen you, does it. actually, there's another story which was in, I'm going to say, without looking it up, uh, was in Unquestionable Practices, which I think actually was a story that you sold to Jonathan for an Eclipse anthology. And it's about Sasquatch. Yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> or, or something like it. Well, it's it's a sort of Sasquatch story, but it's a very realistic story uh, up to and possibly including the the, 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 the the appearance of Sasquatch, who turns out to be, uh, I hope I'm not confusing it with another story, kind of a celebrity by the end. Well, it, you're, you're, you're. Am I conflating two stories? It's not really a Sasquatch, but he looks kind of like a Sasquatch. And he's found on a mountain that is associated very intimately with Sasquatches. Mm. So it's very it's very normal that you might think he was a Sasquatch. I guess I thought he was. Yeah. But I think he's actually um, <laughs> kind of a, a, an entity from somewhere else. Ah, okay. Clearly had an affair with the narrator's mother at one point. I, I, I just looked it up. It was called Up the Fire Road. <laughs> And it was in Eclipse One, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way back when. Uh, you're right because this is an, a, an entity that appears to be male to the female and appears to be female to the male, and so it becomes a gender story uh, at the. But you know, for, for for a good part of its length, you don't know this is going to turn into a fantasy, really. Well, it it didn't. It started with an actual um, cross country skiing experience yeah. I had going up Mount Baker. And which is the mountain in the story, as very clearly the mountain in the story. So it, it was pretty realistic up to the point where, well, exactly up to the point where they didn't 
they they didn't turn around and go back. Mm-hmm. You know, the point where the the um <laughs> the annoying guy says, No, 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 if we go down here, there's right. a hot Okay. Now I'm remembering now, it. In my skiing event where I said, No, no, we're turning around and we're going back. The sun is going down, you know, and and we turned around and went back. So so that, so that that's why it's, it it feels so realistic. Yeah, is that I worked out the details in advance. Well, I kind of feel like we're getting towards the top of our hour, so we should be beginning to think about winding up. I do want to say to everybody out there that one night stand is out in the world. You can get it in this. I think it's a September October issue of SMOs. Um, you can get Night Shift Plus from PM Press and f- from all good bookstores and online stores and whatever else. And it, with a bit of luck, sometime in the next few years, a, a novel as well. <laughs> I hope so. And and a history of fantasy somewhere along the line. <laughs> that is pretty much done. I'm not going into. It's just old. It's not going to be the history of all of fantasy. No, no. Focus on what I was writing about that I was so enthusiastic about. But for now, Eileen Gunn, thank you so much for making time to talk to us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Gary, and thank you, Jonathan. It's been delightful. I really enjoyed this. It's always fun to talk. We like just sitting and talking to you guys. Exactly. Maybe we'll do that soon. (laughs) Well, you will. Well, next, no. Before this pod, no. Before this podcast is over, I have to mention that. The World Fantasy Convention, not this coming one, which is going to be great, but the World Fantasy Convention in Kansas City in 2023 has as its guest of honor our good friend Kids Johnson and our own Jonathan Strawn as editor guest of honor. Oh, yay. Which is terrific, not That's only lovely. for Jonathan, who deserves it, but for editors in general. I love the idea of having an editor guest of honor. Uh, yeah. Which not all conventions do. Uh, no, they don't. I'm looking forward to it. It should be a lot of fun. I've been to Kansas City back in 2016, I think it was, for a World Concert. It'd be nice to go oh, back. But uh, you guys are going to have, have fun very soon. Just only, what, a week or two until New Orleans. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll be there. Be there. All well, right. I hope you enjoy it. And but until, until now. Uh, yep, and, and, until we meet again, then, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. <laughs>